what is good my loves hey divine feminines hey divine masculine so kind of just regathering my my bearings a little bit um i really enjoyed having that that podcast where i was talking a little bit about a trait of a divine masculine in the sense of someone who's able to cultivate um skills in themselves skills in others and skills in their children right and so coincidentally for those of you who've been with me for a long time i've shared the story of what it's like for me to grow up in an orthodox christian school and first grade one of my classmates her dad used to um be like one of the manufacturers for famous amos and i remember for first grade we went out to the factory and it was really cool because even though I was, you know, still going to be the tallest girl in, in the class, we're all pint-sized just walking through this huge factory. And I remember we all went home with uh, Famous Amos and that was stuff we would buy. We also went to Oak Glen, which is like an orchard. And that's where I fell in love with all the different like kinds of apples that they have and my favorite ended up being granny smith and so my mom had to buy me granny smith to this day it's one of the only ones i'll eat but i kind of like other ones too like fiji gala so on and so forth macintosh but but um i also remember them making the skittles and i also remember them making the um m&ms and the thing about the m&ms is um <laughs> they let us did let us taste it before it got coated and I think they did get a kick out of it because before it gets coated, it's the raw coconut, uh, not coconut, raw, raw chocolate. And chocolate tends to be butter. I mean, butter, bitter. And so, uh, you know, we put our little fingers in there, bite into it, and it's like, oh, it's nasty and type of stuff. And then we move on because they were showing us a different phases, you know, line of production and all of that kind of thing. And so move further along the line and then finally it comes out in all these colors and i remember seeing the orange ones so you taste that one and it tastes sweet and you're like oh it's magic that's so cool you know type of a thing so coincidentally um october 7 this uh youtube channel comedy hype does a story on famous amos and i wanted to talk a little bit about you know, I'm by no stretch of the imagination going to call him a divine masculine, but I want to kind of point out, I think, a couple of things that that come out. And I think that one of the things and I'm not going to go to the to the point of calling him toxic. I think that he's just, you know, um, an everyday type of guy. And I think that we can learn from his lessons. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to put it in the title but I'm going to illustrate, you know, uh, I cut to the three minute and 51 mark and then we'll just kind of flush out some of the rest of how his story unfolded. So up until this point, I didn't know this about him, but he um, actually worked his way up through the ranks literally from like working in, I'm going to say in my words, kind of like in the mill room, worked his way up until he um, was able to book talent and worked with people like Gladys Nine and and that type of thing. And so he was known for managing talent, but um, he was able to take, I believe, his aunt's recipe and kind of take that as a new venture on the sideline. I, I'd like to think that once he's up there, he's starting to 
rub shoulders with people and you start to understand that it's important for you to have other enterprises to diversify your income. He's not always going to be able to book talent, so on and so forth. This is what the elite do, you know, and um, he was trying to do the same thing, too. So he took his his uh, aunt's favorite uh, renowned uh, cookie recipe. And um, so fast forward, here's here's one part. So this is him trying to have three locations out here in, I believe, like in Los Angeles, right? So let's get into that part first. Ah! <laughs> and I clicked on the wrong, here we go. Let's start right here, 307. Extensive advertising campaign and a gala grand opening. The first famous Amos cookie store opened on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles in 1975. Okay, so first uh, one was in Sunset Boulevard. Within months, Amos had opened two more West Coast franchises, and the New York-based Bloomingdale's department store had begun selling the gourmet cookies. His relationship to Hollywood certainly helped his business and gave him some nice marketing resources. When entering certain rooms in Hollywood, Wally would share his sweet treats, which always garnered a positive response and helped him build a reputation for being an excellent baker. Amos told the New York Times in 1975, I go to meetings with breaker company or movie people and bring along some cookies. And pretty soon, everybody was asking for them. As just stated, the first famous Amos store opened on Sunset Boulevard, where things were anything but easygoing. Amos had recently divorced at the time of the first store, which resulted in he and his son, Sean, being the ones to run the shop. The level of crime in the neighborhood definitely didn't make it an ideal place to open your first business. I hope you heard that, right? So we've been talking a little bit about, you know, this is in the early 80s. And so here he is. You know, he, there were some things that he did try, um, but and there were some also some missteps, I think. And so he tried to put it in a black neighborhood, but what took it out? The crime rates. Remember, I did a podcast maybe about a week ago, week and a half ago, and we were looking at how life is business. And a lot of the times we say, well, we don't have any black owned businesses in our in our you know, neighborhoods and, you know, there's discrimination and, you know, either they don't want to service or they're just leaving us or, or that type of thing. But here it is, you know, somebody that wants to have his company there, right? And what, what's his, what's one of his first setbacks? Crime, right? Crime. And it was to the point where it's kind of like affecting his own shops so not even his own community at that point was trying to see the value in you know sometimes we we get a lot of um i know when there were the riots and that's that's a touchy subject too because i don't know to what degree who did what but but um even with you know your own people having your own their own businesses there no one's trying to protect his business or look out for his business, even though he's serving that, that community and employing people in that community. So let's keep going. As there were some instances where the two were affected by the downsides of the neighborhood. Reflecting on the experience, his son Sean stated, it was an unlikely place to sell cookies. The east side of Sunset was seedy. There were prostitutes. We were across the street from a strip joint. We were held up a couple times, but a few blocks down was the A&M Records Loft where dad had offices next to Quincy Jones. He saw something. He felt that what he was doing would transcend the neighborhood. I stood on... And you know what? And that's probably going to make me go just a little bit easier on him. 
But even he says, you know, he was hoping that it would transcend the neighborhood. He was hoping that in some way his contributions would be able to, you know, that what he was doing would be able to help his community, right? And push beyond that. And it's one of those things where maybe he's seeing just how close it is, just a couple blocks down, how you have all this success and affluence and and that type of thing. And if he could just connect that bridge and connect that gap, you know, um, kind of like reverse gentrification, but just didn't work out. Milk crates to ring up customers. I worked the front, dad worked the back. They sold three kinds of cookies by the pound. Chocolate chip peanut butter, chocolate chip with pecan, and a butterscotch chip with pecan. The business and brand ran extremely smoothly through the first year of business, reportedly bringing over $300,000 in revenue. By 1982, the company was now worth tens of millions of dollars and was indeed one of the top cookie brands in the United States. In the decade of 1975 through 1985, the cookie was endorsed by many celebrities and regular customers alike for the high quality ingredients in the cookies as well as the diverse set of flavors. The signature picture of Wally in his straw hat and cotton shirt became synonymous with delicious cookies and played a pivotal role in the establishment and maintenance of the famous Amos brand. Wally gained a level of celebrity due to both the success of his brand and his Hollywood connections. He made guest star appearances in some of the biggest shows at the time, including Taxi and The Jeffersons, and occasionally hosted block parties in which the likes of Muhammad Ali and Andy Warhol attended. Hmm. Wally was a great marketer and a great baker, but he wasn't the best at making business decisions. So- and that's another thing, too, for my divine masculines, you know, and of course, this should also include my divine families, but my divine masculines, you know, we have got to start to understand business acumen. You know, I think that even as I'm looking at this, maybe it's possible that a lot of us are figuring out, okay, let's get back into entrepreneurship. Let's get back into business. Let's get back into real estate and these types of things. Let's get into these business ventures. But, you know, it's a skill, it's a craft, and we have to learn to hone our our business practices, right? I'm going to go back five seconds and then we're going to take it from there. Wally was a great marketer and a great baker, but he wasn't the best at making business decisions, something which would eventually result in him having to sell the famous Amos brand in order to keep it alive. Bad investments, along with other money mismanagement and declining sales by 1984, are said to have been the main reasons why Amos decided to sell. And I get him with the bad investments, too, because, and again, I'll, you know, I've made bad investments in life. It potentially could have wiped me out, so I, I can understand that. I can understand that, but I think that one of the things I would like to see moving forward too is if I pass down my knowledge and because of social media, excuse me, I'm drinking my matcha tea here and talking. So that that's never a good combo, but maybe we don't have to make the same mistakes that our forefathers did, right? We can pass down that knowledge. Like even if I tell you school hard knocks, well, let's just skip that. Let's just keep going. But I think what kind of bothered me was some of the things that's going to come up next. And it kind of, I think that that attitude permeated how lackadaisical he was about his business practices. Right? So let's go. Parts of his business. An excerpt from the aforementioned History Channel states, Amos struggled to keep up with the brand's rapid growth. By 1985, famous Amos reported $300,000 loss on sales of $10 million. 
He would. So he had made ten million dollars. Remember his first year, he had made was it three hundred thousand in sales, and in reporting ten million in sales, he's reporting a loss of three hundred thousand. Y'all for cookies. Overhead on that, and you don't even need a lot of staff on that for three locations. Yeah, that's... And I'm, I'm, I imagine at some point he was probably doing distribution and, and whatnot, too. If he's the main marketer, then, you know, back then, I don't know what was going on with uh, marketing costs and whatnot. And remind me, too, as if you can remind me, I want to talk about market cap. Because for those of you who've been with me having these conversations for a little bit... Um, you'll remember that I played a clip by Ashley M. Fox. I highly recommend you go follow her on YouTube. But I, I'm going to see uh, maybe in the next minute or so, if they don't say something, I'm going to come back and talk about market cap. He wasn't a businessman. He was an amazing marketer and had great promotional instincts, but he made a lot of bad decisions. Amos continued to raise money while diluting his own equity. At one point, he lost his home. In 1985, Amos sold a majority stake to Bass Brothers Enterprises for $1.1 million. There we go. They just said it. So he, uh, he sold majority of his um, his shares for $1.1 million. And what's interesting to me is when I learned that stuff from, um, from like, she talks about how in Jay-Z, he mentions in his song, like, Cap Table or Cap Rate. And so I was uh, listening to this again. I'm picking up on some things I didn't hear the first time around. And it's just unfortunate because he kind of used a strategy that was available, but we want to play chess and not checkers, right? So was that a strategic move to sell his shares? Yes. But the difference between selling your majority of your shares and him understanding that he wanted to own at least some of the shares, he should have sold... um, a smaller portion. Um, and again, for those of you who listened to the clip from um, Ashley M. Fox, uh, that's where they're still like investors and, and get certain profit. But and, and another thing, too, is you really don't want to sell more than 51% of your shares. You always want to have majority um, ownership because you want to have your name. But let's keep playing. He sold it to save it, his son Sean said. He's always been impulsive. And, and I wanted to, oh, and I'm going to go back five more seconds too, because I want you to also keep in mind the person who is kind of uh, keeping his legacy here is his son, Sean Amos, right? Um, and also, he said three or like two critical things here in this five second clip. His son said he sold it to save it. And I want you to hear one more thing he said. Uh, Amos sold a majority stake to Bass Brothers Enterprises for $1.1 million. He sold it to save it, his son Sean said. He's always been impulsive. And that's another thing, you know, when we talk about divine masculine and or divine feminines too, right? What happens with your uh, impulsivity, right? What happens with um, how you... I, I talk a, a little bit, like, was it a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, about your... Um, how you self-pacify, right? But part of how you self-pacify ties into your impulsivity. Do you have to have it now? You see it, you want it now. You want the lifestyle now. You you um, don't have enough foresight to see what's going down the future. Um, and it's kind of like you want immediate 
gains and you want instant gratification. And so um, I'm probably, as I'm talking to myself, need to get back to a point where I can do some types of notes so that I can point out the characteristics or traits of the divine masculine. But one of the things you want to want to pay attention to is your impulsivity, right? Foresight, the need for instant gratification, and it costs it. Again, you want to learn to strategize and and also, I just almost feel so bad for him because it's like majority of your shares in a time where we were always taught at a minimum, he should have owned at least 51% of the shares, right? So that at least you have majority. And then let's see what, what ends up happening here. A lot of entrepreneurs are. That same spark that can drive you to take a chance prevents you from listening to others. Mm. You think you're infallible. Mm. That's another one too, y'all. Not listening to others, and it's it's it kind of sends shivers up my spine because it's like, do you mean to tell me people were trying to advise him otherwise, or to try to caution him, or tell him, you know, kind of give him better advice? But he said a lot of of entrepreneurs are, and he said one other thing. Hold on. Spark that can drive you to take a chance prevents you from listening to others. You think you're infallible. The company ownership would be in the hands of various businesses from the years of 1988 through 1991 until being purchased by President Baking Company in 1992 for $61 million. So he sold majority of his shares. And a couple years later, it was sold for $61 million, y'all. <laughs> I don't know. like, and, and you'll see how that happens because even the same way I feel listening to this... Is the same way that it unfolded and manifested with him. Let's go. 55 times what Wally sold his controlling stake for, showing just how much money Wally could have made. During these years, the production of the cookies changed, and preservatives were added to give them a longer shelf life, and they were redistributed as more affordable than before, prompting Wally to step entirely away from the brand as he didn't like the processed food aspect. You can't compare... So he stepped away entirely from the brand, and yes, he's going to talk about, you know... He didn't like it, that it was machine-made versus handmade. I, I can tend to agree with him. You know, I don't have very much insight on that at this moment in time. But at this point, he has stepped away completely from the name. But this is the part that I think made me want to come on here and just share um, share this, I guess. I don't, it's just, it's not, um, I don't know. It's not the positive side of a, of a divine masculine it's it's like the red flags or things that you want to neutralize or eliminate in your character, okay? Pair a machine-made cookie with a handmade cookie. In 1992, when Wally attempted to start another cookie company named Wally Amos Presents Hazelnut Cookies, he was sued by the new famous Amos owners for trademark infringement and now realized his own name and likeness was no longer his to use. They said he tried to start over and he realized that his name was no longer his to use and i think that we're gonna see in the next maybe three or four minutes that he didn't understand the value of his name and i think that that was his uh, um his underlying issue way back in the beginning he thought that his name was something that he could just throw away loosely and he didn't guard or protect 
that, right? It's that idea that you can just get up and, and go again, that you can always have another chance, right? And that you can just be kind of non-sadistical. And again, you've got to, if you're going to do business, we've got to make better business decisions. There really is no reason in 2022 moving forward where we should be getting these types of hits. You know, if if we're going to be having our businesses, you know, and setting up our LLCs and I will be documenting that process and you can you're welcome to do that alongside me and, you know, having different ventures. Let's make sure to protect our name. And and when I tell you that the next uh, succession of things that come out are going to be kind of like some real heavy hitters, let's get into it. I'm going to go back five more seconds. I'm going to play it and then keep moving forward. On his trademark infringement and now realized his own name and likeness was no longer his to use. Wiley commented on the incident stating, I was stupid, plain and simple. I sold the company and didn't realize I had sold my future along with it. And so there's this is this is um, punch number one. But I again, I'm, I'm stay tuned with me because you, you have to hear the next part. He says, I didn't realize I had sold my future along with it, y'all. <laughs> my divine masculines, your name counts for something. Your legacy counts for something. You consider yourself a divine masculine. You were meant to leave behind a imprint okay and same thing for my divine feminines too and you talk about regrets yeah that has to suck a lot afterwards he rebranded the company under the name uncle no name but the brand would file for bankruptcy in 1996 reflecting on losing the gold mine that was the original famous amos brand wally doesn't seem too bothered I lost the company. So what? It's just stuff. Can't take it with you. That bothered me to know. And this is why I came on here. Because he said, I lost the company. So what? It's just stuff. You can't take it with you. That type of thinking is what got him in that problem in the first place. It was just a company, but that company had his name. And at that point, he had children. He had Sean. And he had sold his birthright. And I think that um, even when I was doing the podcast where we were looking at, you know, it's the one that has the, the, the thumbnail of the older man um, with the red shirt on. Right. And we were talking about like the cost of business in, in that podcast. And what struck me was that this older gentleman has to take the bus an hour and a half two hours one way to go get four bags of groceries right no wife no children no nieces and nephews no company no business didn't leave anything behind in the community because i think that a lot of the times in the black community and especially that the way that christianity permeates our culture it's just stuff you can't take it with you But but that 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 company that was able to sell it for sixty one million dollars. What kind of lifestyle do you think, you know, do you think that that person that sold that one bought his company for one point one million and the company that bought 
that company they're after for 61 million do you think it's just stuff for them they understand that they can't take that stuff with them but they understand their children can and their children's children's can and they also understood the importance of innovation right innovation has its pros and cons obviously he didn't like the the taste of the cookies going you know a little bit too synthetic and and adding artificial ingredients for you know that to, in order to prolong the shelf life but one of the things that that you can see with dominant societies they said how can we take this this um good and convert it from 1.1 million dollars to 61 million you start to look at your logistics your distribution channels your packaging um you look at your overhead costs um all of those things to multiply to make it available to other people think of all the jobs and people that were hired right all the real estate purchases that were made right the impact it made in the community and he's going to say one other thing too but again it's the idea all along, you know, there were several things that he had within him. Impulsivity, thinking that he's infa- infallible, not taking advice, not having um, business understanding to the point where not only did he lose the business, he also came back and, and was got a strike for trade, trademark infringement and also filed an, made another company and got bankruptcy on that one, too. But again, his name didn't matter enough to him and it didn't matter for him to pass it on to his own son. And so then that's the difference that we have between, you know, I think Dominus. Oh, that was so gross. Y'all, I want to have a compilation. Well, I don't know. I, listen, I stay drinking stuff. I'm not even going to try to apologize. I can tell you, though, if I was around like a, a like really handsome guy, I would be so embarrassed right now. But I wouldn't be talking so much. I'd be listening. I'll be using my two ears and listening to be talking. Oh, my God. Anyways, so <laughs> I probably would be turning like my cheeks would be turning red. Right. Um, but yeah, that that really bothered me. And I think that this is almost an interesting contrast too between um, what what happens with the the traits of the divine masculine in the podcast before this where this the the ones that are they play the drums and stuff he honed those skills for himself and he instilled it in his children and that's something that they can carry on with them and with that they're carrying on the wilson name right let's keep going In 1999, Wally would get an opportunity to now work for the company he once owned as a spokesperson now that was the brand owned by keebler at first Wally tried to give the job a chance but he couldn't make peace with the fact that he was just another employee at a company started by him in the first place and quit after one year. It was bittersweet, says his son, Sean. He was happy to be back in the center of the brand he started, but he also had a hard time accepting the fact that at the end of the day, he was just a paid spokesperson. Wally would leave the brand permanently and set out to make a new way with his Muslim company and relocated to Hawaii where he opened a bake shop. In the midst of all his bakery business and success and failure, and I wish I could show you this, but it's showing um, his preferences for for uh, spouses. And um, let's just say he had a preference. And and um, 
it doesn't show his first wife. And I think part of the reason they're going to say it right now, too, is because they didn't have children together. And then um, around the time that he opened up the bakery, you know, like the cookie franchise is when he had uh, is when he was married to his second wife. And so she is she kind of looks like the um, is it Angela? Um, but very, very, very fair skin, but Afro texture kind of hair. Her hair looks like mine, but I am way, way dark. I look more, um, ethnic or I have to find a type of a black woman, but she's very clear skin. Um, but her hair, her hair telling on her, y'all just a little bit, but phenotypically, you know, and, and you have to remember the timeline. This is, and you could tell even when you saw his son, earlier on that the son was kind of already respectfully (laughs) could tell there was you know a little admixture going on in there and then his third wife who he's still married to now is just all out blonde hair blue eyes um type of a thing and so he that's that's what he ended up with so i don't i don't think the other women stood a chance to be quite honest with you i just think that they were kind of just holding a spot until he moved his way up because you have to remember he literally was like one week was the the floor next week is the fries type of a thing so his first if i didn't play the first part of uh his progress but he literally started from the bottom worked his way from the from the um the floor of wherever he was like kind of like in the back of the mail room to out into the main office area. And then from there, he was able to get into like talent management. Um, he, and I think he used to dance as talent at the soul and soul train. And then from there, he started to book talents and that's how he came into contact with celebrities and those types of people. And so then with that transition, it's kind of like that first wife is not good enough. And now you upgrade to what you think you're worth. And then once you start to, you know, because even though in some instances it can sound like it's a failure, even if you still have a portion of the shares when it sells at 61 million, you're still going to get a good amount. Now, it's not going to be as much as if you had sold 51% of the company or more, but you're still going to get your nice little cut. And so with that, then you really start to feel yourself. And then now you really go for the type of woman that you want. So let's go. Failure. Wally has been married three times and has a few children. His first marriage was to Maria Lafori sometime in the late 1950s. The two divorced after a few years with no children. In 1967, he would marry singer Shirley Ellis, with whom he has one son, the aforementioned Sean Amos, who is a musician in his own right. Mm. The two divorced in 1978. In 1979, Wally would marry his current wife, Christine Harris. And it is not remiss on me at all. So he divorced... The mother of his child, his first child in 78 and got married to this one in 79. So I think there was a little bit. But you know what? Let me let me let me stay out the kitchen. Let me just stay out people's business. The couple has three children, Sarah, Gregory and Michael. Additionally, outside of his business endeavors, Wally is a strong advocate for education and frequently encourages the youth to value a proper learning experience. So, yeah, that's it. Um, He just goes on to talk about how, you know, like he met people. Let me turn the volume off. Like he met um, the the Bushes and who else here? He was an advocate of, you know, reading to your children in the womb. 
from birth to six years old. And he also went on to go and be featured in shows like um, The Office. And he also went on, what's that one show where they, the Shark Tank, trying to sell another cookie brand, Cookie Kahuna. Um, but just never quite recovered from that. And I feel like there was one more thing that I wanted to, um, he says here, Aunt Della's basic recipe for cookies became the foundation for much of my success, but it was her recipes for life that sustained me to this day. So I think, you know, even for my divine feminines, y'all, what if the story behind all of this, I'm already at the 32 mark. Let me keep it to one minute and get off here because I want to keep these short. Divine Feminines, I think that um, we are getting ready to go into Jupiter Aries Direct. And even Mina has been talking about this. Y'all know I I like to listen to her content in terms of um, uh, Universe Guru and Million Dollar Babes. Part of us balancing our feminine side is the action part. So Aunt Della had the formula the whole time, but she didn't believe in herself or have the the action or foresight to carry it. The man took it a little bit further, you know, but he had some things that he had to fine tune within himself, too. So there's a lesson for both divine feminines and divine masculines in there. Can you imagine recipes that would sustain you for life? I'm so glad I caught that towards the end. So I just need to kind of remember what I'm going to title this again. I hope you caught something out of it. And um, but I do look forward to highlighting positive traits in what I think are, you know, make a, up a true divine masculine that we can see in everyday life around us. And this one was kind of venturing a little bit about divine masculines. But even as I was talking about, it, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not here to give advice to men. I'm really not. <laughs> so I'm going to like probably scale back and just um, start to maybe focus on divine traits of the divine feminine. Um, I think if I do talk about divine masculines, it's just going to be kind of like the gossipy, like, girl, if he's this, this, that, and the third, or something I would look for in my partner, then that's what I would say. But I'm not out here really trying to give advice to men. I'm just, I'm really not. I'm not, I'm not trying to be your mom. Okay. You, you already have your mammy, your mammy and your pappy. All right, y'all. Bye. Y'all, and I promise you, I'm going to put this part in here. I, at this point, I'm not even going to, to, when you talk about divine timing, I mentioned that, um, this is the third time I'm listening to Mina's stuff because I kind of fell asleep a little bit and I'm going back in to listen to it very keenly. It's 23 minutes. Listen to what she just said, because I ended it with talking about how both divine feminine and divine masculine have to understand the container, the fun. Let, let me let her say it real quick. The saving, the investment. What? I was never taught in my childhood because my parents just didn't know what's the masculine container of money. So the masculine part is the saving, the investing, the the you know allocating different funds for different things in your life the ability to be able to hold that container of what goes where and to budget and to have a long-term strategy strategy and plan Mm. right so that's the logical rational part of money management right that part uh, was something i had 
absolutely zero knowledge in. So you know what? I'm going to put this clip up at the forefront. I am going to um, break down the story of Famous Amos. And my Divine Feminines can get the story too. It's at the very end where I see how women can learn from this. And coming full circle is how I clicked on this as I was working on the thumbnail and the description. Went back to watch it. This is coming from the clip from Mina um, on Million Dollar Base. It's titled, From Middle Class to Millionaire, Manifest Money and Then Actually Grow. I think my Divine Feminines and my Divine Masculines can learn from this. And if I, I'm not mistaken, because I mentioned I did listen to some of it while I was falling asleep, not once, but twice. Um, she, for my Divine Masculines, she, her husband also has, I have never been to his page or anything, but um, her husband also has material if you're interested in that. And she does reference it, if I remember correctly, later on in that video. So go check it out, y'all. And enjoy the rest of the podcast. Bye.